As director of the Aquinas Institute, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the first of this year's Aquinas seminars. Our theme for this year is De Magistro, Aquinas and the Education of the Whole Person. We hope to explore aspects of what St. Thomas Aquinas has to say about teaching and formation and bring him into conversation with some other thinkers and movements. We'll have three seminars this term. Professor Andrea Rubiglio has had to postpone his seminar owing to unforeseen factors. So the next seminar this term will be two weeks from now given by Father David Goodill of this community. And we'll have five seminars in Trinity term starting on the 29th of April and ending on the 27th of May. And we apologize for any inconvenience caused by this change. It's my very great pleasure to welcome Dr. Zina Hitz to deliver our first paper, and not just because she studied at my old University of Cambridge. She did her doctorate at Princeton and has taught philosophy at several different universities she spent three years in the Madonna House Apostolate and has been teaching back at her first university, St. John's College, Annapolis, since 2015. Dr. Hitz has written on law, virtue, friendship and human nature in Plato and Aristotle, also on the meaning and value of learning for its own sake, and her book on that subject Lost in Thought was published by Princeton last year, and we congratulate her on its publication. Dr. Hitz is interested in bringing humanist studies to non-traditional students, and to that end has taught in prison programs as well as in universities. So we eagerly look forward to her paper on the spontaneity of the mind and the desire to learn. Dr. Zina Hitz. Uh, thank you so much uh, for that introduction. Uh, I'm very grateful for this invitation. Uh, it permitted me to think through some thoughts that are uh, fresh to me. Um, fresh, although they they lie in the, the background of Lost in Thought. Uh, I wrote Lost in Thought for a general audience, a general educated audience, and uh, I took some shortcuts through the philosophical theological basis on which my thinking really rests. And so this is a piece of that attempt to clarify and work out in some detail um, what the theological and underpinnings, uh, theological philosophical underpinnings of learning for its own sake look like. Um, so you'll hear me, given that it's fresh thinking, trying to sink my teeth into questions about Christianity and education that are vast and that have a lot of reaching tentacles in different directions. So I'm very much looking forward to your help in clarifying and solidifying my thinking. So the focus of my inquiry today is uh, starts from the difference between an intellectual life guided by faith and an intellectual life undertaken without faith. And I want to look at that difference with an eye to how that might shape our thinking about both secular and religious learning. And especially with a special eye to the transition from one to another that is how one might make one's way through intellectual activity without the guidance of faith, uh, into faith and thereby into a richer type of intellectual life guided by faith. Uh, so uh, I'm going to present three approaches to this set of questions and attempt to kind of circle around it and shrink it and get it into get some traction on the questions that are so large. Um, so the first, so the paper will have three basic parts. Uh, the first 
uh, will has its roots in my thinking that comes from law and education in Plato and Aristotle. And the second longest part of the paper is an account of these issues as they appear in Augustine's Confessions. And the last is some more theoretical speculative reflections coming from that reading of Augustine, which I hope will point us forward into other thinkers and into more uh, general systematic speculative questions. So education is a enduring positive transformation of an individual in his or her thoughts, understanding, feeling, or desire. Given the intimacy of the process and its roots in our most fundamental modes of being and doing, the individual must actively participate in his or her education. It could be described, education can, as something the student or the learner does rather than, as we customarily speak of it, something that is done to them. So we do have some words, uh, self-taught, autodidact, autodidacticism, that describe special sorts of people who handle education this way. And what accounts for our view as this is something unusual or extraordinary, um, and here I get a little bit uh, of, uh, you go back so far a bit that you lose the view of the picture, but uh, you know, education is a change in response to certain experiences, to reading, hearing, seeing, practicing. Uh, by definition, it's a positive change rather than a negative one, it's growth. So for that reason, we consider a terrible education or a bad education to be a failure to educate. And we assume that positive changes are led or disciplined by others, um, elders, teachers, parents, as well as certain customs, practices, and so on. Since our susceptibility to experience can have a variety of consequences. So I think that's the, the largest understatement I've ever written or spoken, that our susceptibility to experience can have a variety of consequences. Um, so what, what bridges the gap um, oh, sorry, I skipped a page there. So let me narrow in a bit on, on the target I'm after. So I spent uh, much of my career as a scholar studying the role of law in education in Plato and Aristotle. And I was struck at the outset of this uh, study by a problem about how uh, externally imposed rules or recommendations could ever produce conditions of the soul, habits, or virtues that went beyond mere conformity. So how can an external entity, especially a collective one lodged in words like a law, uh, or even a human teacher, bring about actual understanding, or for that matter, an actual deep desire for the truth? So I've put the question just now in terms of the intellectual goals of education. But my original inquiry was about morality. So we can consider both types of example. I may learn a form of moral behavior, say chastity or avoiding racist speech. I'm trying to hit different generations. Uh, there may be some people here, I, I'm not one of them, I'm too young, who remember a, a norm of chastity. And uh, all of us, I think, are now learning about the norms against racist speech. So I may learn these forms of behavior by imitation, and I may follow a rule out of fear or out of shame, but who or what, that all comes from the outside, who or what teaches me to, be, to want to be genuinely good regardless of the consequences? Who teaches me why chastity matters or why racism is bad? Not just an explanation, but an explanation that I recognize and see and accept with the powers of my own mind and with my own heart. Who or what teaches me to see the rightness or wrongness of a behavior or an act as is to feel it from the inside? But what would a moral life be without that desire or inner sense? That is, these things are essential, they're not dispensable. So likewise, if we choose an intellectual example, I may be taught the Pythagorean theorem as a child. I may apply it to all sorts of right triangles with ease by that learning. 
perhaps at some point I will read or memorize a proof for that theorem. Uh, but learning a proof, learning a theorem, and understanding, really seeing for myself why that theorem is true, are two different things. And the latter can't be forced. Uh, so one's capacity as a teacher, for instance, reaches its limit once one has opened up the space for that understanding to take place. So in both morality and in intellectual life, there is a gap between the uh, capacities of external influence and the goals of education that we're interested in, which is a robust internal state, uh, the activity of uh, the individual who's being educated. So, uh, so on the one hand, understanding or the, the internal conditions, the feel of a real question, the desire to learn not based on a reward, it doesn't seem possible for an educator or an educational system, an educational program to give to a person. On the other, what would education be without it? So human beings are not machines, programs to behave in certain ways. Uh, they are animals who perceive and act, who seek to know and to love and who develop habits and forms of excellence in doing so. So what bridges the gap between the limitations and tools of education, which are all operating from the outside and the robust inner conditions that educators or at least good educators have as their goal. And perhaps uh, to, to this wise audience, the solution to this difficulty is obvious, um, but I, I have part of my uh, uh, gift and shortcoming as an intellectual is I tend to reinvent the wheel. So it was a revelation to me when I realized that for Plato and for Aristotle, who are the, the thinkers who I've cut my teeth on, and I think it's also going to be true in some respect for both Augustine and for Aquinas, for these thinkers, the intellect and its desires are essentially active. Their capacities and desires are always, so to speak, at the ready. Um, their active powers are minds and hearts, inhibited or held back by obstacles. Our desires, our passions, things that we habitually pay attention to, habitual laziness, sloth, hyperactivity, distraction. So education is like gardening. It clears out obstacles. It clears out obstacles so that the natural processes of questioning, inquiry, understanding, and all of the pleasures and joys associated with that can take place because of the kind of thing a human being is and can be in the same way that in gardening, one creates space and removes obstacles for those seeds and plants and so on to be the things that they're supposed to be. So consider the famous story um, in this light of from Plato's Mino, the slave boy of the Mino thinks he knows how to find the area of a square when he doubles the length of the side. So a square with a side of two has a magnitude or an area of four. So he thinks a square with a side of length four is going to have a magnitude or an area of eight. So the slave boy is making a mistake and he needs a piece of reasoning to show him that he doesn't know in fact what he seems to know. Uh, in the dialogue, Socrates gives him this piece of reasoning, shows him that he in fact has the wrong answer for how to find uh, a, the area of a square by doubling the side. But we're left seeing him puzzled. We're not given an account of his actually learning the right answer to this question. But it's not hard to imagine that he does figure it out in the space that he's left. So here, we see the function of something which is going to return later in the talk, namely what I want to call the, the destructive aspect of reason, um, the reasoning that tears down false belief. I think this is sometimes called critical reasoning, um, but the word critical feels to me a bit too inchoate and connected with other questions. Um, in, I think, some Neoplatonic writers, you have uh, purgative use of reason, which I like, of course, because it reminds me of spiritual life and St. John of the Cross, 
but we can't assume that um, something positive takes the place of this destruction. But we, we so I, I'm just going to call it the destructive use of reasoning and see what happens. It's the the um, the tearing down of of false belief, the revealing of contradiction. Uh, so, what happens to the picture I've just been painting about the active powers of the mind and its obstacles? when we distinguish as we intend to distinguish intellectual life undertaken in Christian faith from intellectual life pursued without faith? What role does faith play in our development along these lines? Now to look seriously at this question, to get traction on it again, we need a, a nice dead theologian with a broad scope an eye to the human elements, as well as an eye to the transformative power of grace. And we would ideally know what these forms of inquiry look like and not just get an account of their underlying principles. So the, the text that seems to me obviously most fruitful here is Augustine's Confessions. Uh, it has this extremely rich narrative uh, and it's uh, despite its reputation, uh, very theologically sophisticated. Uh, and it gives an account of life, intellectual and otherwise, on both sides of faith. There are sort of before and after pictures. Um, and I think Augustine presents himself uh, as a particular individual in a particular time and space, but with an eye to uh, the universality of his story. This is, after all, how stories work. They show us something broadly shared or universal, some human thing, which then instructs us. So the Confessions is an account, among other things, of Augustine's education. He begins from boyhood, uh, where he describes his education in grammar, which he memorably um, gives an account of, he calls it, giving up the raucous games of boys for the morally and spiritually equivalent competitive games of men. But it's his philosophical education um, his, his philosophical inquiries and its role in his conversion, where I think we find the most help with the, the, the huge mushy set of questions we started out with. So uh, when we bring the question I've asked about the difference between the faith illumined intellect and a, an ordinary intellect without faith to the confessions, certain things about the structure of the book, uh, which might otherwise be obscure, uh, become very clear. So through uh, book seven, which is the point of his conversion in the narrative, we have two parallel stories uh, interconnected, but I think can be separated. One about his, his practical life and the other about his education, his search for wisdom. Uh, in books eight and nine, we have uh, the account of the conversion and its immediate aftermath. Um, and then we have uh, four books which are philosophical, books 10 to 13, the treatments of memory, time, and creation. Uh, these, in ways I'll suggest, are um, meant to illustrate whatever their worthiness in their own right, which is great. They meant to illustrate the exercise of the faith-illumined mind, the post-conversion mind, uh, the fruits of the love of wisdom, once the recognition of wisdom himself has properly been recognized. So Augustine, so these exercises begin with uh, an inward turn at book 10. Augustine looks into his own mind and examines his faculties, uh, especially his memory, and he's seeking the place where God is, the meeting point between God and himself, uh, the way, mysterious as it is, God is present to his mind, uh, his intellect, or in his experience. So the presence of God, as sung in his, um, his famous hymn to beauty in the middle of book 10, inspires a recognition uh, of the wretchedness of his nature as a human being. So we have just after this, this inquiry into oneself to seek the point of encounter with God, into one's memory, one's intellect, uh, it's a, it's, has the structure of an ascent. 
we at that point uh, turn to an account of concupiscence, um, the human moral weakness, and including the, the diagnosis of uh, the perverse intellect, uh, perverse intellectual activity, namely curiositas. So um, the peculiar presence of God through faith, which preoccupies these last four books, um, it, where on the one hand, God is very much present. On the other hand, uh, he's absent through human limitation, cognitive and volitional limitation, as well as um, uh, creaturely being and uh, restriction in time and all of the other restrictions, which, which uh, uh, give a sense of God's absence, even in the midst of his presence. Um, this we also find not just in book 10, but also in book 11, when we have the, the treatment of time is an aspect of the encounter between an internal being God and a temporal beings like ourselves. <clears throat> and the analysis of time is a, a precursor. Uh, it takes us to the magnificent philosophical interpretation of the opening of Genesis, books 12 and 13, which is an analysis of how a timeless and eternal God might enter into a human story in human terms um, in sun, moon, land, sea, birds, fish, and as a human being. Uh, the uh, splendor of the account of creation, it seems to me, is the account of uh, a creator God who does not tinker like a mechanic in time uh, as our imaginations are restricted to think, but in some way um, stands as a cause uh, underlying the, the um, cosmic change that we see in front of us, um, underlying creation. Uh, so I'm not gonna, that's not very, that's a bit muddled, but the point is that God is recast as he might appear in Genesis from a uh, being that intervenes like a mechanic in time to a something like a first cause. Um, so it's a, a ingenious, magnificent philosophical account of creation. So the choice of Genesis, I'm not gonna go into that in any detail for obvious reasons, but the choice of Genesis as an object of analysis at the end of the Confessions is not arbitrary uh, because in his account, his more biographical account of his earlier life, it's shortly after reading uh, an oration by Cicero, uh, the Hortensius, um, which calls him to wisdom uh, as a young man, um, inflames his heart with love of wisdom. He reads this oration by Cicero, um, and then because his parents are Christians, he opens up the Bible to Genesis and he's disgusted. Uh, he's disgusted at the crass account of God who acts in time, who walks in a garden, who um, speaks uh, temporal words, who forgets, who makes mistakes and so on. So it's, it's this disgust with Genesis, which um, is part of his motivation for joining the Manichaeans who also reject, uh, although they're nominally Christian, reject Genesis as an authority. So the culmination of his intellectual life by the narrative of the Confessions is the return to this book, the, the rereading of this book with fresh eyes and illuminating by the foundational truths of faith, which alone can yield an understanding of that type of book. So when we have these last four books of the Confessions, the philosophical books, um, Augustine's pursuit of women, honors, and wealth, which we've seen earlier, drop out. And we turn to faith illuminated philosophy. And it, that's, a, that's a, a, narr a structure of the narrative that I think is meant to illustrate the change that Augustine thinks faith has wrought in him. So the book falls then into two basic parts. The latter is the philosophical inquiry, beginning with an inward turn, culminating in creation. And the first is the biographical part, more narrowly speaking, uh, describing the divided pursuit, 
the pursuit of wisdom on the one hand and the pursuits of sex and ambition on the other. So these threads might be seen in the following summary of his life, which I give just for the sake of, uh, for those of you who haven't read the book recently um, or for whom it's not fresh. Uh, so as I explained, Augustine as a young man falls in love with the idea of wisdom while reading an oration by Cicero, the Hortensius, which is lost. He trips up when he turns to the Bible because the God there seems crude, material, and implausible. He then turns to the, the cult of the Manichaeans, <clears throat> Gnostic cult, whose thought features a grand cosmic and moral vision and whose esotericism nurtures a felt superiority. His Catholic mother is frantic. Uh, she seeks counsel from her bishop about him. And her bishop says, uh, and I think this is crucial, um, don't worry, pray for him. He's going to find his way out of this through reading. Um, and that the bishop is correct about that. So Augustine eventually sees Manichaean cosmology fall apart in light of philosophical astronomy. He finds contradictions between um, the Baroque uh, cosmology of the Manichaeans and things which philosophers have determined about the motions of the heavens. So at that point, having lived with the Manichaeans for nine years and seeing their cosmology fall apart, uh, he becomes a skeptic for a time, uh, thinks that truth is not knowable. Then he meets Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan. He reads the Platonists. Um, he comes to recognize intellectually that the Christian faith is true, but he lacks faith that's rooted in his will or in his heart. And that's evidenced by his continued compulsive attachment to uh, political advancement and to sexual gratification. So uh, three uh, conversions of Roman officials, which he either hears about or encounters himself, and interspersed with the story of St. Anthony in the desert, these stories break him down. Uh, in tears, he retreats to a garden, uh, hears a child's voice telling him to take and read, and opens the Bible to St. Paul, which on his account finished the job. That is... Uh, that is the, the entry point of grace. That's a moment of conversion. It's a transformation of his will, um, which then follow, is followed by his baptism and his uh, 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 entry onto a life of faith. So what's the difference, if any, between the principles which govern Augustine's intellectual life before and after his conversion? Do the same principles govern each of these parts? The answer is obviously no. So his intellectual journey begins with this oration by Cicero um, about wisdom. And his heart is set afire by the idea of wisdom. Uh, what does this really look like? What does it mean to fall in love with wisdom like this? He surely doesn't know what wisdom is. Um, now we know uh, from other things Augustine says about the Hortensius that it also says, describes happiness as um, the end of all human desire. So wisdom and happiness seem to be identified. Uh, he has a, a sort of description uh, which he can uh, hold before himself and wait until he finds what matches the description. That said, uh, the oration is lost. Uh, uh, enough of Cicero survives to suggest, and I'm, I'm prejudiced here against Cicero, that um, part of the effect was these ornate periodic sentences, which produced powerful feeling, um, but without providing much grasp of the substance of the thing that was being praised. Um, on the other hand, this moment does transform his life, and uh, it's reasonable to think it couldn't have been so transformed if he had not latched on to some real object of his desire. Um, 
so he, he it wouldn't have stuck, I don't think, um, if it had been a merely sentimental fantasy. So the pursuit of wisdom is not the same, uh, of course, as the pursuit of knowledge or the pursuit of happiness. It's a peculiar desire that seems to promise both. It's theoretical understanding that uh, pins down the core of our practical life. Uh, it's the contemplative fruit of uh, speculative inquiry and also action and experience. So uh, we see too, um, in Augustine's failed encounter with the Bible and his turn to the Manichaeans, uh, some of the obstacles that stand in place of his understanding. The Bible, as Jerome also complained, is not written in Ciceronian Latin. It's not written to appeal to a lover of rhetoric or a teacher of rhetoric, as Augustine was. It's a book for a broader audience, and so involves a sacrifice of one's self-image. Uh, so Augustine fails the test. He joins the Manichaeans instead, who offer the consolations of esotericism, uh, what C.S. Lewis calls uh, the lure of the inner ring, the lure of belonging to an exclusive and superior club. The Manichaeans also offer an account of human nature that excuses bodily weaknesses while securing a ground for one's self-esteem in the predominance of particles of light. This is the part of the weird cosmic metaphysics of the Manichaeans. Particles of light constitute one's reason and they are one's true self. So how do the Manichaeans satisfy, appear to satisfy or satisfy his desire for wisdom? He stops there for nine years after reading Cicero. How does that work? For the most part, it seems by a kind of substitute or a conglomeration of substitutes. So his satisfactions, the satisfactions that keep him with a cult for nine years, feel like the satisfactions of understanding. That is, they feel like the answers to a desire for wisdom. So two special satisfactions may be relevant here. I'll just single them out to clarify my thinking. On the one hand, you have uh, a rationalization for his life with the mother of his child, which Augustine continually emphasizes is a sexual compulsion, at least in part, although he also loves the woman and the child. So a rationalization is nothing if not something which feels very much like a reason. It feels like a guiding piece of understanding, but it isn't. So the satisfaction that undergirds a rationalization in this case is the physical satisfaction, the satisfaction of a habit, a domestic habit, not having to change one's life. Um, so part of, part of what I'm trying to suggest is that in the structure of a rationalization, uh, the, there's a satisfaction that's outside, so to speak, of, uh, of the object of desire, uh, that satisfaction somehow from the outside secures a place in belief. It secures an idea. Um, it secures a vision that one does not properly speaking understand. So in this case, so he, he in other words, um, believes he's satisfied his desire for wisdom, but the satisfaction is coming from somewhere else. And what in human ingenuity, he uses words to cover the gap. Um, so uh, Augustine among the Manichaeans placates his desire for wisdom with an image of knowledge in another respect. So one is the rationalization that's generated from a satisfaction which is external to the desire for wisdom or the desire to happiness. Okay. Um, but here's another one. He describes in this time of his life, his love of public refutation, especially of ignorant Christians. So victory in argument is an image of knowledge. It's a sort of competitive image of knowledge. 
if I see the ignorance of another and if I display it, I seem to be in the know. It's interesting because uh, one can presume that the refutation is real. That is, it doesn't have to be a sophistical refutation, although sophistical refutations exist. Um, one can, without knowing anything, display the ignorance of another person. Uh, so um, we we have this this capacity of reason. This is again the destructive power of reason I mentioned earlier where we are capable of um, proving something false, proving a person mistaken, um, without thereby providing positive understanding or without thereby proving a truth. So we have a picture in this of the limitations of destructive reasoning. On the one, not only does it not produce understanding uh, or prove a truth. It's purely just you find the contradiction, you show up the contradiction, you refute the claim. Um, so not only is that uh, a, a limitation, so to speak, built in, but it's a limitation which provides a false image of learning or knowledge or understanding um, because of its competitive structure, because someone else is wrong and you see their wrongness. It gives an illusion of understanding, knowledge, or superiority, which could in turn provide a satisfaction. Again, the satisfaction in question is not the satisfaction of the desire to learn, or the desire to know, or the desire for wisdom. It's a satisfaction that's coming from a different source, the satisfaction of uh, ambition, of pride of life, of superiority to others. So. Uh, these are just the two ways in which I think his life in the Manichaeans satisfies his um, desires for learning or appears to satisfy them, but the satisfactions are patched together. They're ad hoc and they creating an illusion that his initial desire for wisdom, desire for happiness is satisfied. So uh, does Augustine, while he's with the Manichaeans, experience the satisfactions of learning, the pleasures of learning? Does he experience intellectual delight in that context? Now, we have only his own narrative, which is has this uh, theoretical agenda that I've been trying to untangle, but it's not obvious that he does. What he describes are competitive pleasures, pleasures in superiority, pleasures in victory, pleasures in sex, pleasures in domestic habits. These pleasures substitute for the pleasures of real understanding and they stick him in place. That substitute sort of holds him, uh, puts an obstacle in front of him for nine years and he's left believing things um, this Baroque, the Baroque cosmology of the Manichaeans, the metaphysics of the Manichaeans, believing things that in fact make little sense. Um, so how does Augustine find his way out of this? Uh, well, it's our old friend, destructive reasoning. He finds contradictions between Manichaean cosmology and philosophical cosmology. So there's this Baroque structure of the Manichaean world. And then there's things that philosophers have discovered about the way the stars and the heavens work. They're not consistent with one another. The Manichaeans are unable to clarify this difference. Um, and accordingly, the whole edifice for him, the whole edifice of Manichaean belief breaks down. So just as in the art of refutation, the finding of contradiction opens up previously unrecognized ignorance. Okay, so sorry, the finding of contradictions opens up previously unrecognized ignorance. This is just like Socrates does to the slave boy in our earlier geometry problem from the Mino. But again, that refutation does not provide knowledge, it's not provide understanding, but only the recognition of ignorance, the recognition of one's own failure.
before circling back to the basic questions I began with and then wrapping up, I want to pause to emphasize an aspect of Augustine's thinking here, which lies in tension with the conventional view of it. Faith, we often hear in Augustine, is the precondition for the successful use of the intellect. Uh, so we often hear the conventional view, so far as I can tell about Augustine and his view of reason is that it is crippled without faith. So we already know, I think, from what I've said so far, that this view is grossly simplified at best. The destructive use of reasoning is successful and it does not require faith. It is a natural capacity, not natural in the sense of belonging to Adam before he eats the apple, but natural in a way that endures even in the condition of original sin and concupiscence. So the special power of faith governed reason, which I'm not denying, lies elsewhere. It's not that reason is ineffectual, it's just that its powers have a certain limitation. The use of reason without faith is illustrated to even more dramatic effect, the successful use of reason without faith. When Augustine turns to the Platonists, um, which is how he gets out of his temporary stopping place with the academic skeptics. So he reads the Platonists under the guidance of Ambrose and he is persuaded of their truth. That is the truth of um, that the, the fundamentals of reality are incorporeal and that the material world is in some sense causally dependent on incorporeal principles. He's persuaded of the truth of that and through that becomes intellectually convinced of the truth of the Catholic faith. He's quite clear about that. So how could the fact that he's become intellectually convinced of positive truths, namely the, uh, primary, the primacy of incorporeal reality, um, and in fact, the truth of the Christian faith, um, how could that be compatible with thinking that reason isn't somehow inescapably crippled without faith or that faith is a precondition for the effective use of reason? Uh, this account of Augustine is evidently incompatible with Augustine's account of his own life. And uh, he's far too careful a thinker and subtle a writer not to have noticed that himself. I think there's, there's very strong grounds without having presented a detailed argument that handles all the other evidence that this, this conventional view of Augustine is false. None of that is meant to undermine the dramatic role that Augustine's conversion plays in his transformation or the role of grace in his transformation. Um, but that transformation, it's very clear from his discussion, takes place in the will. Uh, prior to hearing the child's voice in the garden, he is intellectually convinced, but unable to live his faith. He's unable especially to renounce sex and ambition. It's the grace of God through the words of St. Paul and the voice of his child changes his will. Uh, it's the change in his will, which transforms not only his life and his ability to live it, makes, him, makes it possible for him to give up uh, sex, to uh, give up ambition, to give up his career. Um, but it also transforms in ways I've already suggested his capacity to think and to understand. That is, it makes possible this rich, robust, uh, magnificent theological inquiry that we get in the latter half of the latter parts of the confessions. So um, Augustine means to communicate the effects of faith on the intellect, the special powers of the faith illumined intellect in this virtuosic philosophizing in books 10 to 13. They are meant to depict also, I think, um, the attainment of the earthly happiness such as it is that faith gives him. Um, they are meant to bring the philosophical reader along to experience firsthand the joys of learning and understanding, um, joys which he has obscured from us in his earlier life suggests that the joys that he experiences in those parts were not taken in the correct object. What brings a person, this is the last section of my talk, 
uh, where I speculate <laughs> even more than I have already, believe it or not. What brings a person from basic human oblivion, eating, sleeping, playing game surprises, waging war for honors, learning for the sake of acquisition, advancement, games of one-upmanship? How does a person learn for learning's sake or seek human excellence or human happiness for its own sake? What sets them on the route toward God? That is where our initial focus on education brings us, education that is for conversion. <clears throat> what do we mean when we recite as good Thomistic Catholics, the slogan that grace builds on nature? We mean, I think, that natural goods, food, drink, beautiful things, the joys of learning, things available to us naturally, open us up to grace. Now, how do they do that? Consider an encounter with a natural world, which I gather is a form of intellectual delight. We see in Iris Murdoch's famous example, it's the kestrel. Okay, we see the kestrel in everyone's hackneyed example. We see the sunset. Um, the kinds of examples that move me are the, you know, the arrangement of limbs, the grace of an animal. Um, it strikes us, this fact about the natural world, this being in the natural world. We, that is, we not only see it, but we see it in a non-acquisitive way. We see it not as something to eat or to drink or to consume or to um, decorate our homes with, but as something which is. And we see it, and this I find this language bland, but I don't have an alternative. We see its goodness. Understood this way, we can see the opening of Genesis as God the creator modeling for us the appropriate response to his creative act, that is by seeing and by pronouncing good. The delight in the existence of something, delight in what it is, also casts light on ourselves, the perceiver. And here I think is where the piece of Augustine comes in where um, the recognition, the understanding, the reach towards the good, the reach towards God involves necessarily a kind of self-awareness or self-consciousness. Okay, so our delight is partly a grasp um, of our own inadequacy to uh, make or to cause such a thing. And it's true, I think, even of the artisan's delight in his or her own work. Even in artisanship, which Aristotle famously compares to having children, we are subject to matters beyond our control as we're cooperating with certain processes or certain materials with a certain use in view or with a certain end in view. And when it comes together, there's a way in which it feels ours because we've cooperated, but also in many ways, totally beyond us. So this is the analog I think from in, in the Mino case of awareness of our ignorance, there's a kind of awareness of our inadequacy, of our own powerlessness, of our dependence. Uh, and it has a parallel again in Augustine when he delves into his cognitive faculties, as I say, finding God and beauty in doing so, and then stepping back to think of the fragilities and the weaknesses of human powers to know and to understand. So too in other forms of intellectual delight. Paul writes in the Romans, as Augustine and Thomas quote multiple times, that God is accessible through the things he has made uh, at the natural level. That is, it's available to pagans. God is accessible to pagans through things he has made. It's natural to think here of kestrels or of stars or other natural wonders. But if we think of that moment of self-recognition, the moment of seeing ourselves as weak or as ignorant or as passive, we see it, I think, in every serious intellectual endeavor. So the mathematical problem, whether it's the slave boys or a different one, cannot be solved by will. It reveals itself to us. 
it's not up to us. And it seems to me in this sense, we might speak in a manner like everything else I've said that should be worked out more rigorously than I'll be able to. In this sense, we might speak of the activity of the mind as being subject to a kind of light, that is the light of truth, which does not itself originate in us. So uh, uh, a brief return to more pedestrian matters. We Catholics, at least traditional Catholics like myself, are too fussy about the conditions of learning. We imagine that everything requires doctrinal preparation. Nothing can be read or undertaken without having been adequately prepared by the catechism for beginners or by the Summa itself for the more advanced. We're not wrong that faith provides an incredible gift, not only in eternity, but in loving and knowing here and now in this life. We're not wrong that faith illuminates the understanding and makes possible insight and wisdom that we could never reach to otherwise. But we must be cautious not to try to make mechanical what is in fact natural, or rather first natural and then supernatural. We ought, as Catholics, to take special pains to make available to those in our communities the riches of the natural intellect. We must combat, as Christians, the notion of education, which is now totally pervasive, as the passive reception of information. Without that subjective encounter with a hard reality, that active and yet somehow inadequate encounter with some truth without the recognition of the existence of something beyond ourselves, the operation of grace is impeded or held up. Its channels are clogged. So we must trust that the God who creates and the God who redeems will do their work if we do our work of removing obstacles. Thank you very much for your patience listening. Now I can open to questions. <laughs>